Good morning. We're glad you're watching this morning, and we pray that God will speak to each of our hearts from his word. We began our Let's Break the Rules series last Sunday with our message, Living by the Rules. We took a quick stroll down the path of Genesis to Revelation to, to show there's a definite difference between rules-based Christianity and relationship with Jesus. Rules-based Christianity easily has a way of becoming distorted to make faith more measurable, more visible, to becoming a standard by which we compare ourselves to others. My obsession with appearance, with checking off some religious boxes, lays a foundation for my intolerance of others who maybe don't hold the exact same beliefs as mine. Then my notions of being consistent and true to myself propel me to feel I don't need to listen to anyone who thinks differently than me because I already know they're wrong. So God looks at all this and he renders a verdict. People, I want relationship with you, not compliance to rules. Stop mistaking your system of rules for the relationship. Stop making your list, mistaking your list for the life, the transformed life of the freedom I want for you. In fact, the entire Old Testament, Jesus said, can be boiled down to just two rules, love God and love everyone around you the way you love yourself. Our Lord is saying, stop living the Christian life from your head only. Your following me is extremely cranial while you barely have a heartbeat. I want your heart to be engaged with me and others, not just your head. Oh, that's good. <laughs> that's a very, very good way of saying it, Dan. So, uh, this message series, we've embarked on this journey to figure out what does God say to us about how we're supposed to relate then? How do we break these man-made rules that we've kind of come up with that don't work so badly? And uh, we've identified, or I should say, Dan, you and your, your work have identified six rules. Uh, don't talk, don't feel, don't trust, don't think, don't choose, don't change. And the title of this talk now is Let's Talk. How can we break this don't talk rule? And what does the scripture have to tell us about talking, Dan? Well, in my life story, I shared a few weeks ago, I mentioned I'm at least a fourth generation Woodard to be raised with a don't talk rule. And that went, children and women are to be seen and not heard. When I left home after high school, I could do three things. I could read, I could write, I could play the piano. But I seriously had little idea how to talk, how to have a conversation. A couple of months into my freshman year of Bible college, I had my first official date with a lady who had been raised in Africa as a missionary's kid. We went to this banquet on campus, and as we were sitting there waiting for the banquet to start, I felt I really should ask her some question to get to know her. What question should I ask? I asked her the first question that came to my mind. How many elephants have you seen in Africa? <laughs> What possibly could be wrong with that question? Her response was shocking. She replied, I've never actually counted them, but I've only seen them in the zoo. I then realized immediately I was in trouble. I had no idea what to ask her next. A couple of months later, I worked up the courage to go on my second date with another lady who was pursuing a degree in communications and speech. As we were sitting on the ground having this picnic, which she had prepared, the best question I could possibly think of to ask her was, 
Can you explain to me why somebody would ever be interested in pursuing a degree, a degree in communications and speech? <laughs> well, she never winced. She graciously answered my question, explaining the great value of what she was learning. I was pretty impressed. Fast forward several decades after sharing these and other silly stories around the supper table with my sons a few times in the course of their growing up years, accompanied with the heartiest of laughter, all three sons prohibited me, to my great surprise, from having any Facebook contact whatsoever with their girlfriends or their families of origin until their wedding day, lest I chase them away like <laughs> I did most all the dates in my university years. Can, can anybody beat that? <laughs> Those are quite the stories, Dad. <laughs> Hope I didn't disturb everybody, but I just couldn't help it here. You were just, uh, that's incredible stuff. Oh my goodness. It, it's, these are funny stories about how we struggle with communication. And you know, uh, the scripture does talk about this issue of talking. And uh, I'd like to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Exodus 3. In this uh, chapter here, Moses who's uh, been in the desert for 40 years, because actually, let me start at the beginning. He, uh, he was raised in Egypt as the son of Pharaoh, Pharaoh's daughter. And uh, then uh, he tried to be the rescuer of Israel and murder the Egyptian, had to run for his life and 40 years in the desert. And he's out there and he sees this bush that's burning. He walks up to it and to his total surprise, God's talking to him and saying, I want you to be the one who can bring my people out of Egypt. And uh, he says, in essence, well, who am I? Who am I? You got to be kidding, Lord. I'm, I, I can't do this. How could I ever do such a thing? And God says, look, I'll be with you. I'll help you. But uh, Moses pushes back and he says, look, when I go back to my people and tell them, the God of your ancestors has sent me to lead the Exodus, they'll ask me, well, what's his name? Then what do I say? And God replied, tell them, my name is, I am who I am. This has always been my name, and this is how I will always be known. Well, what's, what's in this name, I am who I am? Well, let's just paraphrase it. I am exactly who I am. I am transparently, authentically myself. There's no spin, there's no pretense, there's no hiding, there's no darkness. I'm all light. I am exactly who I am. Now, that contrasted dramatically with Moses, who'd had 40 years of pretending to be the son of Pharaoh's daughter, and then he tried to be the rescuer, and that didn't work. So then 40 years, he's in the uh, wilderness, watching sheep that had very limited vocabulary. And so he left him convinced that he was nothing and he couldn't even talk. I invite you to turn to Exodus chapter 4. And Exodus 4.10, Moses lays out his best objection to God. Lord, I have never been eloquent. I only stutter and stammer. Can you identify with him? God responds, tell me who made the human mouth. Now go, I will help you speak, and I will teach you what to say. 
And it's in this context that we ask God the question this morning, Lord, teach us how to talk, how to break the don't talk rule. There are at least three ways the don't talk rule shows up. The story of Moses shows us one way. It's about the silence. There are reasons why we just clam up and live in silence. We give each other what's known as the silent treatment sometimes. We can think that by just avoiding the other person, the conflict will blow over and the silence will make things better. In some cases, it feels like there's nothing left to say. So the relationship is finished. We go silent when no more common ground exists. We're tired of beating a dead horse, so we shut down and maybe we disengage and maybe agree in our words and then just go completely cold altogether. Silence can be the most misunderstood and misrepresented type of human interaction. Well, there's another way that the don't talk rule shows up in our human interactions, and that's illustrated in the story in Genesis chapter 3. You remember, that's the time when um, Adam and Eve had uh, disobeyed God and eaten of the tree that they were not to, and God came down to talk with them like he normally did, and Adam and Eve are gone. And so he comes looking for them, and he says, where are you? This is the first time God speaks to someone who has turned away from him. And look, God's coming for him, asking him, looking for him. And Adam responds by being truthful at first, and then he starts to spin things a bit. He says, well, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of that tree that I commanded you not to eat? And so he begins to spin things. Oh, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Now, you know, spin is a form of propaganda or biased interpretation of reality. It's often disingenuous and deceptive. We try to reframe the perception of a situation to reduce some, any kind of negative impact that might have on our reputation. And in this case, Adam shows his lack of responsibility and he blames Eve for his disobedience. Now, when God turns to Eve and asks what she has done, Eve copies her husband's spin by avoiding responsibility, and she blames the serpent. This is the classic form of the don't talk rule. It's manipulating reality through our words. And Adam and Eve would never have done that before they disobeyed, but after they disobeyed, this seems to be kind of a natural. Natural for them, natural for us. So Adam and Eve embraced the don't talk rule through spin. Moses embraced the don't talk rule through silence. Is there another form of the don't talk rule that we rely upon? Yes, there is. Turn over to the story of David and Bathsheba, 2 Samuel chapter 11. David lives at the halfway point between Moses and Christ. His reign as Israel's second king was marked by military success social prestige and the promise of future prosperity. From all outward appearances, things couldn't have been any better for the king and his amazing kingdom. But inside David's heart, where human eyes couldn't probe, a steady erosion was taking place in his ability to withstand temptation. It was a spiritual slide away from God prompted by an undisciplined life of passion, polygamy, and idle pleasure. 
when the moment of temptation came, David chose to not resist, and the rest is history. 2 Samuel 11 details the extent he goes to in keeping his secret of lust and adultery, a big secret. Indirectly murdering one of his loyal captains in the army to protect his shame is no problem for him. In chapter 12, the Lord sends the prophet Nathan to confront King David on his heinous sin. David's commitment to the don't talk rule was a direct result of his shame. The verdict? 2 Samuel chapter 12, 11 and verse and 12. This is what the Lord says, out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity up on your family. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Is David's shame would become very public through the severe consequences in his family and in the nation. Folks, this don't talk rule is a serious issue. Let's be candid. We shut down into a prison of silence to avoid trusting anyone with a struggle that's tying us up in knots emotionally. We protect shame from something that's happened in our past by never disclosing that part of our story to anyone. We avoid talking directly to someone who we feel has disrespected us in some way because it's just easier to talk about them to others instead of approaching them and asking for clarification on something they said. We find reasons to spin the truth to protect ourselves from accountability. We use a variety of excuses to avoid talking about awkward topics and thus avoid the trauma of transparency and just being honest. I recently heard of, a, heard of a man who's been married to his wife for well over 50 years, and shortly before he passed away, he finally shared with her that he never has liked chicken, and she'd been cooking chicken for him all their married life. <laughs> Sometimes, for whatever reason, we just keep our opinion to ourselves, not even trusting the one closest to us with what we're feeling or thinking. Sometimes it can feel better to stew in holding our holding our grudge. In some cases, we may feel it's easier to just absorb the misuse of power happening to us or someone we know instead of having an intense conversation and saying, you know what? I feel disrespected when you do this. Please stop disrespecting me like you're doing. There will be consequences you won't enjoy if you keep that up. Boy, that's good, honest conversation, which actually helps makes things better. We're afraid of it, though. However, the scripture has actually got quite a few sto uh, stories in it about communication and how it works. I'm going to point another one to you in Genesis chapter 11. And those of you that know your Bibles well will say, oh, yeah, this is, this is the Tower of Babel. Because God had given a command to humankind that they were to to scatter across the earth, of the earth and fill the whole, the whole globe. And some of these folks decided, we're not going to do that. We're going to stay in a city. We're going to build a tower that reaches right up to heaven and that uh, we can be God. We're going to decide what we're going to do. And God looks down and says, oh my, they've got three things that they've put in place that they can actually succeed. There's team unity, there's commitment, and there's communication. And when any group of human beings put those three together, they can accomplish a lot. And he knew that what they were going to accomplish would have disastrous results for humankind. So God 
removed the ability to communicate, confuse their language. And when you remove one of those three components, a project falls apart. And sure enough, project fell apart. And the whole project of the Tower of Babel was over and finished. And what this is showing us, that when there's dialogue and understanding between people, it brings lifeblood to a relationship. It brings power to a relationship that, that enables you to, to accomplish a lot, whether it's a family or an organization or a business or a church. But these principles of communication really do work. Well, speaking of listening, let me ask just how vital is listening in the ebb and flow of talking? Turn over to 1 Kings chapter 12. <clears throat> the setting is the nation of Israel has been living as the world superpower. After about 20 years of King Saul, 40 years of King David, and 40 years of King Solomon, resulting in the nation's borders expanding to five times the size when his father David was king, Israel had a great future. Well, not exactly. Solomon's great wealth is partly due to the soaring taxes he received from his countrymen. After his death, his son Rehoboam must decide if he will cancel or continue the harsh taxation policies of dad. So he did some research. He asked his elders, what should I do? The elders were unanimous. They said, if your government will exist to serve the people, they will always be glad to serve you. So lighten up on the taxes. Then Rehoboam consulted with the young men who had grown up with him. These men said the exact opposite. More taxes is the only way to go. Notice 1 Kings chapter 12 and verse 13. The king answered the people harshly, rejecting the advice given him by the elders. He followed the advice of the young men and said, My father made your yoke heavy, I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips, I will scourge you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people. And this decision to not listen to the people he was ruling over becomes the trigger to the kingdom of Israel splitting and ceasing to be the kingdom of honor and glory they were once known for. Wow all because he wasn't willing to listen. You know, the Bible talks quite a bit about listening. In fact, talking without listening is called a monologue. But in the scripture, we find that talking is intended to be a back and forth dialogue. Like, listen to these verses. Proverbs 1.5, let the wise listen and add to their learning and let the discerning get guidance. And then Ecclesiastes 5, verse 1, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know what they're doing. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. And then James 1 and verse 19. My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen slow to speak. So how should we listen? Here's some suggested ways you can. Here's four ways that can help you learn how to listen well. First, reflect back to the person in your own words what they had just shared. 
This lets them know that you really do want to understand their concerns and you want to value their feelings and opinions. The second thing then is to clarify what the person has told you. Don't assume you automatically understand. In fact, ask, is this what you're saying? And then rephrase it in a way that they hear you saying it. Mm. And then thirdly, actively probe and explore with the other person what it is they're experiencing. You know, Job's friends gave him some good general advice, but they never did explore with Job how he was actually receiving this and what it was happening. And then fourthly, interact with the person in such a way to build them up in the image of Christ. And so we wonder, uh, how is it that this can help in such uh, helpful ways? So what you can do with these four things is to get empathy with them Make sure they understand what you're saying and then offer other perspectives. Hmm. Wow. Um, did you know that the English language has 600,000 words? Educated people use around 200 of these, 2,000. The most used 500 words have 14,000 definitions. So what people tell us and what we hear them say are seldom the same thing. Solomon underscores the critical necessity of listening when he writes in Proverbs 18.13, He who answers before listening, that is his folly and shame. For many years, we had a phrase in the trucking culture, Y'all got your ears on? Jesus repeatedly used a phrase that meant nearly the same thing when he was telling a parable. He would say, He who has ears, let him hear. Technically, Jesus didn't tell parables to help people better understand. He told parables as a test to see if the people actually understood what he had just explained. So I would suggest that each of us watching today have our own journey of learning how to listen and how to dialogue well. My 10th year of ministry was my fifth year of marriage. It occurred to me one day that Deanna had been trying to tell me something that I wasn't keen on hearing. So the idea came to me to buy a spiral notebook and start taking notes on everything Deanna was telling me. In about three weeks time, I filled up that entire notebook. I still have it today. When I finished writing on the final page, I went back and read everything I'd written. Deanna and I then had a meeting between us and it was stunning to realize she had been trying to explain these things to me for at least the previous two to three years. I very soon thereafter made some life-altering decisions that I'd been needing to make for some time. Well, good on you, Dan, for paying attention to the point of writing it down and watching your life. That's, that, that was a very good idea for anybody who would like to break through this don't talk rule. Well, so a glance at the epistles of the New Testament offer us excellent principles on how to talk. Paul reminds the church at Galatia in Galatians 5.14, the entire law is summed up in a single command, love your neighbor as yourself. Then he continues in verse 15 with a warning. If you keep biting and destroying each other, uh, watch out or you'll be destroyed by each other. James continues the warning in James 3.6. The tongue is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person. It sets the whole course of his life on fire. 
he goes on to caution against gossip, which fits in the category of spin. Gossip is sharing negative information about someone with people who are not a part of the problem or the solution, and it's shared as if it's the known truth. We will help stop gossip when we ask the person who's speaking to us, may I ask you a question about that? When you said that about so-and-so, have you spoken to that person about that? See, when harmful things are being said, we need to speak up. Colossians 4, 6. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so you may know how to answer everyone. Then one more back in Proverbs 25, 11. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in settings of silver. You know, this subject of talking and speech is a major subject in scripture. There's lots more scriptures than what we've already talked about. But uh, here we want to, uh, I want to point you to uh, what Jesus did. He was called the word, the communication, the logos. And the, uh, the word comes and he begins to speak to us. And there's a couple of times in the New Testament where we are shown where he has this engaging dialogue. And a, a really good one is when Jesus passed through Samaria and he met the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. And in those days, Jews and Samaritans didn't talk, but he initiated conversation with her. And she was drawing water from the well. And he said, would you give me a drink? And she responds, what are you doing asking me? I'm a Samaritan, you're a Jew. And Jesus is not put off with this, but he engages her. And he begins to say, well, you know, if you knew who was asking you, you'd be asking me for a drink of water. Well, that tweaks her her conversation. Well, how would, you, how would you do that? You don't even have a bucket to get in the well here. You can see how Jesus is, is, is engaging her in this conversation. And as the conversation goes along, she begin, it begins to dawn on her that this, this person here is a prophet. No, actually, he's, he's the Messiah. And Jesus, in this story, demonstrates beautifully engaging someone in a good conversation. He models what we've been talking about. Here's some ways he did it. He initiates conversation with her. He listens to her. He speaks her language, talking about water, drawing from a well. He's responding to every comment that she made. He's careful to bend every effort to meet her where she's at. And he moves beyond just speaking the truth to making it relevant to her. And his phrases that he uses have maximum possibility of being understood. His words are personal, they're interactional, they go beyond the predictable. He goes beyond generalities of principles and he gets very specific to real life. And he's focusing in to communicate the message for both her mind and her heart. And then he invites a response. And she says in verse 15, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep drawing water and coming here to draw water. So what a beautiful example of how to engage someone well in a dialogue. This was not a monologue. It was back and forth, but it was a back and forth with intent and meaning. And you know, this is the way God speaks to us. He doesn't overpower us with monologues. He engages us where we're at, and he invites us to go deeper with him. And this invitation that he gave to the woman at the well 
is the same invitation, same kind of invitation he gives to each one of us. And God will be talking to you if you're willing to listen. He's speaking to you and he's inviting you to come and enter into this dialogue with him, this life-changing dialogue. And when we have this true dialogue with Jesus, that's when transformation happens. And we're hoping that in these messages, that as we learn how to dialogue with God and with each other, that we will experience this transformation that comes with a genuine relationship that actually results in a real dialogue with God, back and forth with him, and with people, back and forth with each other. Because Jesus said, that's how love is shown, is in this conversation and relationship, God and with people. So at the end of this little teaching here, I'd like to just invite you to bow your head and let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are glad that you didn't leave us hiding in our garden, but you came looking for us. And you've said to each one of us, where are you? And you're inviting us to step into our dialogue with you. Thank you, Lord, that you do tell us the truth like you did with the woman at the well. But you told it in a beautiful way that she was able to receive it and yet be changed. And so, Lord, as we listen to you and to your Holy Spirit, we want to respond by saying, yes, give us this life, this living water, and may we be changed to the glory of Jesus. Amen. Amen.